Well, good morning, Georgia Baptist. It is always a privilege as a minister of the gospel and as a Southern Baptist to be with the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, and especially in a state like Georgia, where so many of our people have come from and so many of our people go back to. Uh, you own us. I just want to start here this morning by saying you own us as Baptist churches. You own us, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and Level College. And I am delighted. I'm blown away, to be honest with you, uh, that I get the great privilege of serving at New Orleans and to serve those students and to train up a generation of people. It just blows me away to think about what God has done in my life to bring me to that place. And I'm going to tell you that story here in just a moment. But before I do that, I, I do just want to underscore my gratitude for you on a number of fronts. Number one, the way you support the work that we do there, which ultimately comes back to support the work that you do here in your local churches. And uh, we are delighted with the partnership as Baptists that we have. So thank you for your faithfulness on that front. But then I also want to say thank you so much for the work that you do just of bringing people to Christ and discipling them and laboring in that work. I know that this is not a work that brings you fame or recognition or probably even a lot of money, but it is work, hear me on this, it is work that makes a difference for all of eternity. It is true that your name, and it is also true that my name will one day be forgotten. But the work that we do together for Christ our King will last for all of eternity. So thank you, thank you for your faithfulness in that work as Southern Baptist. We make a great team and God adds his blessing to us and uh, he does great things. Well, this morning, just very quickly for a few moments, uh, I'm gonna share with you my story on how I ended up here. I'll just start out by telling you this is not what I intended to do with my life. This is certainly not what I ever expected. God has done far more than I would have ever imagined for a kid that was born on Chicken Road. And, um, I go back to very, very humble origins, and uh, if I'm proud of anything, I'm proud of that. And uh, I want to share with you my story because obviously this whole thing is about understanding the story of Christ, our story, our individual stories, and then sharing the gospel with people. And it is a starting point that all of us have. Each and every one of us has a story that we can share with others about what Christ has done in us. And maybe your story is going to look different from mine or sound different from mine. It'll have obviously very different details. Mine has some of the gory details of all of my past sin. And maybe, praise God, yours doesn't have that. Maybe it does. But whatever your story has been, whatever, whatever you have been, now that you are a son or a daughter of Christ, he has done something unique in you. And there's a story for each of us to share about what Christ has done. So I'm just going to share my story very quickly uh, today. And then I will, uh, you can go ahead and go there if you want. This is not a sermon, but you can go to 1 Peter chapter 3 because I want to reference one text when I get done sharing my story this morning. I'll come back to just to sort of very quickly lay out a few short principles about how we go about sharing our story. I said a minute ago that I was a kid born on Chicken Road. I wasn't literally born there, but that was where our house was that my father and my mother brought us back to there in North Carolina. I'm a North Carolina boy. I did spend, other than our time now in Louisiana for the last three weeks, I spent two years here in the great state of Georgia finishing college at Tacoa Falls College. But other than that, my 42 years of life and ministry took place in North Carolina. Born in a little county called Hope County, 
Um, and I was born in a hospital there and uh, lived in a little town called McCain. We did not have, we still to this day do not have a single traffic light or anything else like that. There's no Walmarts, there's no Targets, there's no nothing. There's just tobacco farms. I am the grandson of a tobacco farmer. My dad was a tobacco farmer. Very humble origins. Just la two weeks ago, I flew back home to do, my, to do my grandmother's funeral. She died at 93 years old. Very humble woman, a very simple woman in the eyes of the world, not fancy by any stretch, nor are any of the people in the Do tribe or the Do clan. These are just humble, basic people. You could take the whole lot of them, and there's a ton of them. I mean, every time our family gets together, I meet new people that are like first cousins. And um, 42 years this has been going on, and at some point I'd like to know that I've met them all, but I haven't yet. It's a huge family, and I'm telling you, you could take the whole family and you could squeeze them as hard as you want to, and not a single drop of pretense would come out of the whole lot of them. And when I look at that as a young kid, I didn't, I wasn't impressed by them, but the older I get, the more I see that as being something very, very beautiful. There we were, Hope County, North Carolina, tobacco farms. That's who we were. My dad was a tobacco farmer and he wanted better for us. He wanted better for my mom. And so he started working in a Hollig Myers furniture store. Anybody remember the Hollig Myers furniture stores? That kind of funky teal green uh, color that they had, but he started working at a Hollick Myers furniture store and he did very well at it. My dad could sell anything. To, to this day, he can sell anything. He did very well, well in that. He rose up through the ranks. He ended up being offered a manager's position of a Hollick Myers furniture store in Statesville, North Carolina, just about 30 to 45 minutes north of Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, we moved there when I was about 18 months old. I don't remember anything else prior to that, but we grew up uh, there in Statesville, uh, there too, also a very humble place of origins, and uh, everything I knew growing up was right there. I was just an extremely ordinary kid, nothing special about me whatsoever. I wasn't impressive in any way, shape, form, or fashion. The do people, I said, remember, they're very humble people. We're also not the brightest lights in the room either, uh, but God has done a great work there. When I was uh, a kid, my father, I'm the runt too, by the way. I'm the little guy of the tribe. All the do men are these massive creatures. My dad's like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, he dwarfs me and all my uncles and cousins and stuff, they dwarf me too. I tell him I'm the best looking, but that's okay. That's not really true either. But the do men, they're huge people and my dad was my hero. My dad was my absolute hero. I can remember like any kid, like any young boy, you adore your father and you idolize your father. And I can remember all the things that we did together. I remember him teaching me how to throw a baseball. I can remember him putting me up on his shoulder, this massive shoulder and arm. I loved Superman and I would pretend that I was Superman and he'd run me through the yard and I would fly. And I can remember all of those great things as a kid. I can remember when I was about seven years old, one evening, I was sitting in my room, we were about to go to bed, and my dad came and he knocked on the door and he said, Jamie, in my sister's room, Allison, she was right beside us, and he said, Jamie and Allison, I need you to come into the kitchen. Me and mom, we need to talk to you about something. And I knew immediately something was wrong, something wasn't good, because we never had family discussions like that. We never did that kind of thing. So we walk into the kitchen, we sit down at the table and my father begins to explain to me and my sister that mom and dad don't love each other anymore 
and that he was going to be moving out the next morning. There's a lot of details behind that story that obviously I've learned since then, but I can remember, it's funny, even as I sit here and I tell this to you right now, I can't hear it in my, in my head, but I can still see almost like a video that plays back in a loop. I can still see every single detail of that moment playing out in my mind, even as I talk to you right now. And I can remember just as a little boy, my whole world was broken at that point. This is certainly not the worst story that you're ever going to hear, but it is a very real story of a little kid that was now absolutely devastated and broken over the fact that my father was going to be leaving our home and that my parents were going to get a divorce. Indeed, the next morning, he started packing things up and he moved out. And I can remember that afternoon, that evening, the girl that used to babysit us a lot, I can remember when she came in, she just marveled at how different our house looked now that so much of the furniture was gone. And I can just remember trying to wrap my head around this. I was in second grade. This is a time in life where you're beginning to really drill down in reading and things like that. Up to that point nowadays, Lord willing, a kid starts to learn how to read before kindergarten or in, the, in kindergarten or first grade. But for me, that was not happening. Second grade was really when a lot of this stuff was supposed to start happening. And I can remember I just had this bombshell dropped on me that my father and my mother were getting a divorce. And so I can remember that whole year struggling academically. Uh, my heart breaks now for people. We, we often stand in judgment for people that don't do well in school, but they come from a broken situation. I can remember sitting there every single day and my teachers fussing at me and yelling at me and disciplining me because I was not doing my work. But I promise you, I was doing the dead level best that I could. I would sit there and there'd be math on the board or there'd be spelling on the board or there'd be science on the board and I, for the life of me, could not get my mind to engage that because my heart was broken. And so I couldn't read. So it's kind of funny now, I'm a president of a doggone seminary. <laughs> but I couldn't read. And I failed second grade because I couldn't read. I was the dumb kid in the class. I was the stupid kid in the class. My friends picked on me that way. Teachers looked down at me. They treated me as these second class students, me and a group of students. And I couldn't read. I remember just being absolutely broken over this. And so they put me in summer school that summer and I worked really hard. And evidently I passed some test at the end of the summer. I don't know what it was. So they went ahead and they put me up into third grade. And that was a catastrophic mistake because in third grade, I still could not read and I got further behind. And so at the end of third grade, you can imagine what happened. I failed third grade too. I failed two grades. One of them they went ahead and let me do, but I failed two grades, and I remember getting at the end of the year both of those report cards. There was no warning for this. No parent warned me of this. No teacher warned me of this. Back in those days, you got your report card every now and then, and then at the end of the year, you got your report card, and it would say on there, you've been passed to this grade, or you have been retained in this grade. Twice I had that experience. And by the end of third grade, they put me in special ed classes, and I began to work as best I could. By about fourth or fifth grade, I was beginning to read and beginning to make my way through things. Look, praise God for what he's done in my life. I mean, I've gone on to get doctoral degrees and other things like that and write books myself and all that stuff. But to this day, I am an incredibly slow reader. And my children, I have four of them, two sets of twins. Uh, they are 12 and 9. I hear gasps, evidently people do. 
Evidently, you didn't know that about me. Sorry, maybe I should have started there. I have two sets of twins, yeah, and uh, surprise. <laughs> surprise again. <laughs> Straight up, that's how it happened. I mean, I about had a heart attack right there on the floor, but uh, my beautiful children read faster than I do, and I rejoice in that. I praise God for that. To this day, I'm a slow reader. By fourth or fifth grade, I was beginning to read. I was indeed that stupid kid in the class. I can remember one day my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Halp, looked at me in front of everybody and said, you are so stupid. And that, wow, it was over. It was done. I mean, never again would I ever think that I could do anything of value or significance. There were the kids in the class that came from wealthier backgrounds. They were the kids that did really well. They were the kids that were advanced or gifted or things like that. And they got bragged on, doted on, positioned and such, but we got pushed aside. And that begins to absorb into your personality. By fifth grade, I'm so broken and I'm so just brokenness here, but I was one of the cool kids at the same time. And there were opportunities there to indulge in things at a young age. I was involved with girls and other things in fifth grade doing things that I should never have had access to or exposure to. By the time I'm in middle school, I'm into things that are just unconscionable for kids to be involved in. By the time I make it to high school, I am drunk or I'm high every single day going to school. And as you can imagine, I was not much of a student. Things began coming to a head my sophomore year in high school because you can only smoke so much pot. You can only drink so much beer. You can only party so hard and it continue to satisfy you. At some point, covering the brokenness or trying to quench the thirst gets to be about like the person that's parched and famished and drinks the ocean water to satisfy the crave, to satisfy the wound. It may satisfy you for a moment, and dear brothers and sisters, may we all in this room now even understand our sin now the same way. Yes, your sin, as my sin did and has since, satisfied. It really did. And wow, that was fun. Wow, that felt good. But it's like that ocean water. will satisfy for a short, short period of time, and then all of a sudden the thirst is back, and it is greater than it was when it started. And I began as... I'm not a very wise person, but I, I was beginning to figure some stuff out. I was beginning to realize that this life was exhausting. And this life only amplified the brokenness. It only fractured me more deeply. By the time my junior year came around, I got arrested twice. The first time I got arrested, me and a couple buddies, we did this, frankly, quite often. We just got caught on this occasion. We got caught because we're stupid. By the way, there's a good life principle here. I say it this way, life is hard. It's even harder when you're stupid, right? It's true. 
Test me on it <laughs> or test yourself on it. Don't test me on it. But we would go into the back of this little grocery store in the town we were in, which is a small, small, small little town. We would go up, not, not where I lived, but where I went to high school. And uh, there was a, uh, in, in Harmony, North Carolina, there was this little galaxy grocery store, a little mom and pop grocery store. And we would go into the back of that. You'd get a buddy who worked there to kick the back door open. And then you go in and you grab a six pack. Or every now and then you get radical and you grab a 12-pack. And then if you have lost your mind, you'd go in there and grab a case. We did this all the time. This is part of the way we kept ourselves supplied all the time. Well, we got more and more bold, or I should say more and more stupid. And so we began grabbing more and more and more. And one day we just decided we were going to have some humdinger of a party. And we went in there and we stole, there were four of us, each two cases of beer. And we walked out the back door and one of my buddies dropped. Praise God, he dropped it. But he dropped one of those cases of beer and it made all sorts of ruckus and the people in the grocery store came back and saw us and called the police. Within about 20 minutes, the police have found us, blocked us off and come at us with their guns. And I'll never, one of the best things that has ever happened to me was that officer put his gun away, yanked me out of my Jeep and slammed me onto the hood of my car and my head bounced off of the hood of my car. And I can remember that moment. It's one of those moments that'll wake you up. I remember two things went through my head at that moment. Number one, ouch. <laughs> oh, I mean, he knocked the Hong Kong fooey out of me right there. And number two, I can remember now an idea a realization, I should say, that was already lurking there that all of a sudden began to crystallize. And it was this. It was a simple observation that my life is not going the way it's supposed to go. And I knew something was de desperately wrong with me. I got arrested. I go to jail. My mom has to come bail me out. Oh, boy, that was a fun moment. And um, go to court for all of this on a Thursday in October of 1994. I swear in front of a judge with my hand on the Bible that I'll never do anything like this again. You'll never see me in here again. That was a Thursday on a Sunday night. I'm driving down the road in my Jeep smoking pot and I get, praise God, I had a burnout taillight and a cop pulls me over and arrests me again. And I remember sitting there in the car that night in the cop car as he's arresting me for the second time now in a short little span of time. I can remember sitting there and high out of my mind at the moment. And I look over at the cop and I said, I'm moving to Raleigh, North Carolina tonight. And he says, whatever, kid. And he keeps doing his work and we finish up. And well, sure enough, I got home that night. My father had left 10 years before, had been begging me for 10 years to come live with him. And uh, I'd always resisted that. But I knew in that moment that if I stayed right there, that I would either be dead soon or I'd spend the rest of my life in jail, the way my life was going. So I called my father and I said, come get me. He did that night. He comes, picks me up. That's October 9th, 1994. I arrive in Raleigh, North Carolina, October 10th, 1994. And I wish I could tell you all of the details of the next eight months, but let me just summarize it by saying this. Over the next eight months, God began a process of breaking me. I'd been one of the cool kids, one of the popular kids. I'd been one of the cool kids in my school at this point. And now all of a sudden, God was doing a work in me to humble me and to break me. And I resisted. I mean, there were people that would come in my path and they would tell me that Jesus loves me. They would 
encourage me to come to church. They would invite me to youth group. They'd invite me to Bible studies. And I wanted nothing to do with Christianity. I would put them, give them the Heisman. I thought, if I can just tell you, because I have to put myself in this category right now too, so no offense or anything, because it's me too, right? I thought you people were dorks. <laughs> uh, we got a witness here, you know. <laughs> I thought Christians were dorks. I thought they were nerds. I thought they were judgmental. I wanted nothing to do with it. I didn't know if I believed in that God or anything else like that. But God began to break me down and to humble me. And sure enough, I got to the place where I had nowhere else to turn. Throughout this process, there were various moments when I didn't know what else to do other than pray. Didn't want anything to do with God or Christianity on the one hand, but at the same time, the ever-growing realization that I could not fix myself on my own, number one, and that there simply had to be somebody out there. And so I found myself praying prayers like this, God, if you really are there, God, if you really do love me the way that these people say that you do, then God, do something. I never knew that that something would come in the form of arrests and brokenness and hard moments, but it did until God brought me to the point in May of 1995 where I had absolutely nowhere else to go and I just began to pray, God, would you give me somebody, a friend? The next week I met a guy in my high school named Jason who invited me to church. I thought to myself, well, I've been resisting this. Maybe I should go. Maybe there's some pretty girls there or something. And so I went and I was right. There was a pretty girl there. I married her. <laughs> And uh, I met her the first, but I'm still a lost pagan and I meet my wife. And um, oh, that went well, so they invited me to go to this summer camp. And of all the places in the world for a philosopher to get saved, I got saved at a centrifuge youth camp with all of the hype and the bells and whistles and all the things that we pick on and all the things we say is not cool and we shouldn't do. It was all of those things and God used that. I can remember when I got off the bus in Panama City, Florida, in June, of June 15th of 1995, I now had 60 people that had wrapped their arms around me and that loved me and were family to me in just a short period of time. And they kept talking about this Christ. We went into our first worship service. I had prayed. I was so overwhelmed by the fact that God had blessed me with these friends that I made a little deal with God. I said, God, <laughs> You have, I remembered that prayer, God, would you just give me one friend? And now here I stood with 50 or 60 friends that loved me. I could see that God had answered that prayer. And so I made this deal with God. God, you have answered my prayer. You've done for me what I wanted and what I needed. And I had no idea what I was get, about to get myself into. <laughs> but I said, I'll give you anything you want. You just show me. The very next night we go into a worship service. A young guy who's one year ahead of me in school gets up and he shares his testimony, kind of like I'm doing now. He shares his story and it's got the drugs and the alcohol and the girls and, and all of the brokenness. And the real story in his story was also the real story of my story. This is why stories matter. This is why we have to share them. As he shared his story, I could now see that really my, my real story was not the story of all the actual tactical details of the drugs, the alcohol, and all of those things. No, the real story underneath my story was brokenness and shame and guilt and hopelessness. That's the real story of lostness, right? And he began to talk about that, and then he began to talk about Christ. 
He began to talk about how he came to faith in Christ and found hope and redemption and life. And as he spoke about what Christ had done in him, I began to see that what he talked about in Christ was what I had actually always been searching for my whole life. Then the preacher got up and he preached the gospel. That God so loved the world that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life. I had heard that story. I had heard that message hundreds of times before in my life. But on that night, June 16th, 1995, God gave me eyes to see and he gave me ears to hear. And I came to Christ. I knew that night two things. One, that I was now home in Christ. And two, that I would spend the rest of my life doing this. I didn't know what this was. What could God do with a kid like me, a broken kid like me from Chicken Road who's squandered his life and broken himself and his sin? Maybe God would let me be an evangelist. Maybe God would let me be a missionary. Maybe God would let me do something like that. I never in a million years dreamed that God would let me be a pastor. I never in a million years thought that God would make me a professor to train pastors. I assure you, I never, never dreamed that God would call me to be a president one day to train up a generation of servants. I could share a lot more of the story about what God did in my life. God took me from that kid who couldn't read and graduated high school with a 1.6 GPA and he radically renewed and restored me and got me through college and seminary and two doctoral programs and give me the opportunity to author books now and do other things like that. But it's all him. It's all him, not me. God could have done this in anybody. He didn't have to have me, and it certainly wasn't because of me. Here's what I want to say to you in my last few minutes with you before we close here. Your story's different from mine, I promise you. I know that very well. My wife's story, praise God, is different from mine. She's never made a B in her whole life. <laughs> I was quite good at making less than Bs. I did it with flair. <laughs> She's never said a bad word. She came to Christ when she was five years old. She never did drugs or alcohol. She, she, I was her first kiss. Praise God. I hope my children have her testimony, not mine. Here's the deal. It really doesn't matter the details. The fact of the matter of, his, of it is this. You and me, all of us, were by nature children of wrath. You were an alien and a stranger from the commonwealth of Israel. But God who is rich in mercies has made you a son and a daughter and now a servant. And better than any of the art, look, just so I can say this, you know what I do? Before I was a president, I, I was a philosopher. I mean, I, I taught philosophy. That's egghead stuff, man. I love it, by the way, but it's egghead stuff. You know why I did it? Because I was doing evangelism. And to this day, it's evangelism first. And this stuff stays on the shelf unless I got to bring it out. 
But here's why I got into it. You start sharing your faith with people again and again and again, and eventually you meet people that have questions and objections and all of those types of things. And it bothered me that I could not answer their questions. And so I got into apologetics. I quickly learned that for me personally, it was the philosophical questions that bothered me the most apologetically. So I studied philosophy. That's how I ended up becoming a philosopher. But I'll say this, I have no argument. I got lots of arguments cosmological arguments, teleological arguments, ontological arguments. Look, we could nerd out all day long. I got no argument like the power of Christ in my life and the power of Christ in your life. So don't be bashful. Share your story. Very quickly, let me read this one verse. Make three quick observations in less than three minutes. Yes, I can do it. First Peter 3, 15. He says this. This is, by the way, a big apologetics verse that apologists will typically go to, but I think it fits our theme here today. He says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Three principles about you sharing your story, just very quickly. Number one, sanctify the Lord Christ in your heart. What does that mean? It means to put him on the throne and live like it. Jesus said this, abide in me and I in you and what? Oh, John 15, by the way, I should read this later. <laughs> he said, you will bear much fruit. Abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. The Psalms say it this way, that unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Here's all that to say. You can go out there and you can try to make a difference for Christ, but if you're doing it in your own power, you will be powerless. The greatest thing that assists us, the greatest thing that is with us, the greatest thing that makes it possible in those moments is the presence of the Holy Spirit with you in those moments. And as we do the work of God, depend on Him. Sanctify the Lord Christ in your heart. Number two, he says, always be ready to share your hope. The apologists like to say, see, here's this word defense. Yes, there's a word defense, but I almost assure you what he's really telling us to do here is not necessarily apologetics. And I, oh, I just made all my apologetics friends mad in saying that. No, he's telling us to, you tell them why you have hope. You tell them about the hope that you have in you. In other words, share your story and always be ready to talk about what Christ has done for you. The last thing he says here, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. May I just say, we can be an arrogant people sometimes. We can be a condescending people sometimes. When you share the gospel, this is not a moment for you to get another notch in your belt. When you share the gospel, that person is not an opponent. When you share the gospel, this is a not about us winning. It is about us being faithful and it is about us showing and speaking the love of Jesus Christ, our King. And it's not Christian if it's only Christian in content. In other words, you can get the content of the gospel exactly right and articulate it beautifully and act like a donkey's back end in the process. And I'm telling you, you're not honoring Christ. It's with gentleness and respect. May God bless us.
as we do that work. Father, we love you. We give ourselves to you. We ask you to bless the work of your people for your name. As we are well aware, Father, that we shall all be forgotten. Lord, may your name ring through this generation and in the generations to come. And may the broken find life in you as you have given to us. We love you. We bless you and we praise you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.